When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is the final word. And before we start the show today, a quick note from an old partner of ours, dear old Wisdom. Uh, they're back with the final word this month. Yeah, uh, we're thrilled to have the final word um, partnering again with, with uh, Wisdom. Uh, I think that... Um, some people think of the almanac and the book and think it's the only thing that Wisdom do, but um, it's the monthly magazine, Wisdom Cricket Monthly, and the, the quarterly, The Night Watchman, which you and I, Jeff, have both contributed to. And uh, for the purpose of today's show, we want to talk about that, The Night Watchman, which is a, as I say, a, the, the quarterly essays that, you, that, that appear in this lovely book, which is assembled at, at Wisdom Towers there at the Oval. Uh, and we have a, a special deal uh, working with them because they've released their a combination of the best pieces they've ever had written in The Night Watchman over the five years of their existence. Yeah, The Night Watchman's sort of the place where you you go, look, I've got a four and a half thousand word meandering think piece about um, alternate timelines <laughs> in which, say, cricket were a massive sport in Mongolia and how that you would could have do that. <laughs> um, affected... No, I, I literally wrote this piece once. Um, and, and they all say, yeah, sure, write it. You know, absolutely, write it and send it in. And, and, uh, and, and that's what you do. So it's the, it's the, it's the more um, wandering down a country lane of the imagination type of cricket writing. Um, they've got their five-year anniversary special edition with um, a, a selection of some of their favourites from that five years and you can get 20% off it um, with a special code, Adam, that you have in front of you. Yeah, that's right. So the nightwatchman.net and if you put the coupon code in TFW20, so the final word 20, you get 20% off and, and I like the fact that you referenced alternative timelines, Jeff, because perhaps my favourite ever piece in the Night Watchman appears in this special by Jonathan Liu where he recreated what would have happened if the shame war mural actually did occur the way that um, <laughs> the way that he imagined it. Uh, it involves Jason Gillespie. It involves a time machine. It involves Dimitri Mascarenas and, and a range of others from the famous Shane Warne mural. So that gives you a bit of a flavour of the kind of writing. It isn't the sort of stuff that you're going to see appear online on Twitter. I mean, we, very rarely do pieces from Night Watchmen end up being free. They are. It's a premium product, if you like. So. This is an opportunity to get it in a way that you normally wouldn't. Uh, a digital edition, uh, a hard copy sent to you. It's, it's all via um, thenightwatchman.net and the 20% code at TFW20. Um, as I said, we, we love working with Wisdom. I've just started my column back with the magazine, which will be running uh, throughout the course of the Australian summer. So we'll tell you a lot more about that next week. But um, yes, if you love uh, high-end cricket writing, to, to, to put it that way, and you like that, as you say, Jeff, that sort of more meandering style of cricket writing, 
riding rather than just literally what's happened uh, between the 22 yards on the pitch. This is the place for you, uh, Night Watchman. It's a fantastic publication. It's one of the most enjoyable things I do um, when it comes out once a quarter. It usually runs to about 120, 130 pages long, uh, picking it up and devouring it because some of the, the best cricket writers in the world, pretty much anyone who's anyone in cricket writing, um, uses this outlet to, to express themselves from time to time when they have something slightly different to say. Uh, so it's very much worthwhile getting your hands on it. Some of the writers in the five-year edition, uh, Tanya Aldred, Matthew Engel, Emma John, Alex Massey, Christian Ryan, Lawrence Booth, and about 150 others, thenightwatchman.net, um, TFW20. Check it out. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. This is The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. He's back in London. I'm still in Australia. You've, you've survived the trip, I take it. Yeah, I'm back to my London recording studio, so I'm tucked underneath my doona um, in the bloody freezing cold of London with my microphone hanging around my head. So uh, somewhere, a very familiar place for us to record the podcast uh, now that we've been separated again. But yeah, a really enjoyable, uh, I guess I was back for, what, five or six weeks couple of test matches, a bunch of other cricket in between, a few episodes of the show, two live shows as well, which um, we probably should mention off the top, Jeff. Uh, a lot of thank yous for making Adelaide possible last week from the Ambassadors Hotel staff in King William Street. Nearly had a bit of a blunder there last week, didn't we, Jeff? We realised after promoting the hell out of it that there were two different Ambassador Hotels in Adelaide, but Ambassadors uh, in, in King William Street. Yeah. There was a singular and a plural, yes. and the difference between those things is very important, <laughs> and S is important. Thankfully, we'd put the right one on there, but uh, I'm not sure if anyone did go to the Ambassador Hotel, but if they did, they would have found it was a very residential hotel, <laughs> not a uh, drinking establishment. Yeah, that's right. We had, I mean, that, that happy hour worked a treat, didn't it? So we had a four-hour happy hour. Um, yeah, Brad Green and Matt Clemo, who sorted the event out for us, they were just enormous. Uh, the bar staff, likewise. Um, future talent, who we'll talk a bit more about later on, but getting those amazing footy cards shipped over. It looks so good as a, a gift to give people as they walked in the door. Jim Maxwell was uh, his suitable, uh, um, elaborate cavalier self. And Jason Gillespie, I mean, what a great guest. Uh, we've had him on the show before, but having him in that slightly different setting where we weren't necessarily putting the show out, indeed, we're definitely not putting the show out, uh, just uh, letting him uh, play all the shots that he wanted and, and he took full advantage. Yeah, he, it's, it's really nice to see someone who may have been a little bit media shy earlier in his life just relish being in front of a live mm. audience and you know knowing that knowing that he can control them, knowing that he can, uh, like, having the timing on his lines, when to when to drop um, which particular comment and um, just just live to his full potential. It was a beautiful thing. Yeah, it was awesome. And again, like, we've done five of these live shows in 2019. We've basically sold them all out. We definitely sold out Adelaide um, and Melbourne in the last two weeks. So, we've got loyal fans uh, of the show in Adelaide who came out in their droves. So, thank you so much to those that came along and were part of it and introduced themselves to us um, either before or afterwards that, yeah it, it's a really fulfilling thing that we're, we're doing we're going to um, have a break on the live shows for now obviously uh, I'm uh, on the other side of the world to Jeff for, for the foreseeable future but next summer in Australia um, we'll, we'll get back on the road and, and we'll try and do a few more we'll we'll rewrite the material Jeff we'll, we'll, we'll get stuck in we'll find some more excellent guests and and do it all again because yeah it really is a fantastic part of, of what we've uh, been able to turn this podcast into and, and a, a special shout out to uh, 
two individuals, you know who you are, who um, were the, the only two who made both shows, who were at Melbourne and Adelaide. Yes. Um, <laughs> a particularly good effort from them. Absolutely. Adelaide, uh, we we had a test match, Adam. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, nothing much happened for a fair bit of some of it while it was raining, but it was there. It was a thing that, that took place. Uh, but the, the main story coming out of it, of course, David Warner, the, the cheeky 335, um, and this ridiculous story of his over you know the last year or so this this year of coming back into the team dominating the world cup being you know a run away from being the top run scorer at the world cup almost not making a run during the entire ashes series and then coming back with a massive hundred in the first test and then a triple in the second and he could have had the world record score probably if he'd been given another couple of hours to keep batting so and, and i almost would have liked to see him do it just for that basis you know just just to just for the extremity of the turnaround from that low in the ashes to say, oh, well, I've just casually knocked off 405 or so um, a couple of months later back home. Yeah, look, I'm I'm far from the first person to make this observation, but you step back from it now and obviously we were there watching him struggle throughout the Ashes series and it was the fact that he never lost faith in who he was as a batsman. He sort of can talk now about the technical side of what he was doing there and he explained that this is quite a common refrain from players these days that he was listening to too many external voices and he, he, he sort of slightly changed the way that he was batting in front of his front pad and, and all the rest of it. But, um, yeah, hearing Trent Woodhill... Uh, during the week talk, talking about um, Warner's at his best when he's at his most aggressive and he can get into that mindset in Australia which helps I guess to some extent explain the disparity between his numbers in Australia and overseas when he's not quite as comfortable at the crease. Um, the way that Woodhill explains it is is that at home Warner is able to better get himself into, into position to strike every ball for four and then he can pivot and not do it, if that makes sense. So he, he, he prepares himself to strike every ball and that gives him the freedom to leave a lot more balls here than he does overseas. So it's, in a way, it sounds a bit counterintuitive. It's it's explained better by Trent. But the guts of it is is that he never lost confidence in the fundamentals of his game uh, and has been able to... Yeah, I mean, the story arc's incredible, isn't it? When you consider... Um, well, not even two years ago, he was a national disgrace by any measure rightly or wrongly how that was how that all played out that that's how that was the prevailing view towards him and indeed with some people Jeff that'll always be the way he's perceived and it won't matter what he does on the field but but now it feels we've gone a long way towards getting to the stage where um, people are willing to not completely let it go but willing to judge him far more on the basis of his output rather than his character and look maybe that's wrong maybe it's wrong that we only view um, cricketers through what they do uh, in the middle but it does feel like that's the way the conversation's moving I I don't think we only judge them by what they do in the middle because I think there was a high degree of negativity not from everybody but from a a decent chunk of people who are following along around that triple hundred, which there wouldn't have been for another player. So there was the, there was a fairly ridiculous conversation about um, whether he should have gone past the Bradman record, which you know obviously is a um, completely irrelevant point given it's already been done, um, and and that Mark Taylor drawing up level with it was an accident rather than a, a deliberate plan. And then there was also this 
other kind of negative response that was, oh, it was too easy for him because it was a, a, a shit bowling attack and a flat pitch, as though, you know, anyone could just walk out there and peel off a triple hundred um, if the bowling's not that great. <laughs> you know, there's been a lot of bad bowling in test cricket over 150 years, but there haven't been a lot of triple hundreds for, for some reason. So there were people backing him basically saying, well, he didn't do it during the Ashes when it counted, as though it was a, you know, a moral failing that he hadn't been able to make runs in England and and like he was sticking the finger up at us or something by coming home and making runs in Australia. Yeah. So there were these two kind of quite negative reactions to a player achieving a, a really rare feat, whereas when, say, Michael Clark made that triple um, in 2012, it was almost universally adored. It was, oh, my God, I can't believe a batsman did this. This is outrageous. Yeah, yeah, there's a bit here, isn't there? I, I, I kind of can see the parallels to Clark to an extent. I mean, let's not forget how unpopular Clark was when he became captain of the Australian cricket team. But not that um, year. No, 2012 he wasn't. No, 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 he made sure. four, four doubles in a year he wasn't. No, yeah, unpopular. but that's, that's kind of what I mean about the parallels in that when he yeah. excelled and when he went to New Heights, I think from memory Clark scored 12 centuries in his first 30 tests as captain or whatever it is. And in the Steve Smith era, that doesn't sound quite as impressive, but it really was. Yeah, it, it is the case that some people uh, are well in their corners. That's kind of why I love the declaration, me. I thought it was great. It pissed off the maximum amount of people. Those who really wanted them to push towards uh, 400 were furious. Uh, those, um, you know, and, and look, at, at one level, I was one of those. For about five minutes, I'm like, oh, we missed this chance. And on the other hand, mm. it annoyed that those who, um, who for whatever reason, can't let go of the 334 thing. And you're right, Jeff. the happy accident that was 1998, uh, where Mark Taylor declared overnight... Taylor are batted for two full days. They were declaring overnight. It's very, very rare you see a side bat into a third day. And he would have taken the 335th run, if not for Ejaz Ahmed, miraculously getting down to field a ball at mid-wicket, which, like, based on the, the fielding of the two days mm. prior, was, was the outlier. So um, there is a myth of sorts there about 3-3-4 and what it means and what it doesn't mean. Uh, but, yeah, in a way... Um, well, I think it was twice. I think there were two shots from Taylor in the last over um, that would have gone to the boundary. So, so he would have been on three thirty eight, um, yes. and then declare, and, and so basically overnight he realised he was level with Bradman, or he might have already known that, and he thought, oh well, it's quite a nice touch to stay level, so we'll declare, and who cares? Yeah, um, which in a way is almost like that's almost more ego than than getting the record. That's saying like I want to I want to make sure I sit alongside the greatest player in the history of the game in every conversation. And also because you're not out, you actually go ahead of him on the list even though you haven't gone past him for runs. That's because true. Because the, the asterisk takes you ahead of the dismissed batsman. So, you know, I'm not saying it was all just a very clever ploy by Mark Taylor, but he, he was known as a shrewd captain, so who knows? Yeah, yeah. And, and look, Warner said after the innings, we, we had him two nights in a row at the press conference, and the second night he, he explained that... Payne wanted them to go beyond three three four, and that's why they gave him the extra few minutes or, or something like that. It, mm. look, the reality is I don't care that much about that. What I care about is the fact that um, triple hundreds are really rare and you can't diminish them. Brian yep. Coverdale made this point on Twitter not long after he, he saluted that, look, let, let, there's been 31 of them in Test Cricket. I know you wrote about this as well, Jeff, but there's been 31 of them in Test Cricket, yep. albeit 19 of them since Graham Gooch sort of opened the floodgates in 1990. But... I mean, they are. There's a reason why they happen as infrequently as they do. You need so many things to, to go right, and you you probably need mm-hmm. to bat at the very top order. And you know, it's often openers that that get that chance to do it. And, and Warner's had it here, but yep. also the fact that Warner took 44 Test matches to face 200 balls in an innings. It, it shows that he has improved dramatically as a cricketer 
over the last four years to make it possible to achieve such a thing. So it isn't just... And, and the fitness side of it as well. Pete Lawler wrote about the old Dave Warner when he first um, came into the international squad. And not that he was unfit, but he, he never had the kind of fitness that could allow him to run. Mm. He ran 295 runs through his innings. He, he His singles, twos and threes, but also the players he was batting with along the way. Um, yeah. That's not a huge amount of distance as far as um, when you when you tote that up between the wickets but the but the uh, explosiveness of those singles he had to take and, and so on and the way that he ran and the way that he called it was it really was an, an awesome display of, of opening batting an awesome display yeah. of batting full stop and and that's what I love far more than, than the conversation around numbers and you know, and I love a number, as do you. But um, when it's all said and done, I think we're going to remember that for being, even if it was a weak attack, it was against, and even if it was on a on a flashy flat track in in favourable conditions against an inexperienced attack, you still got to score the runs, and he made them so emphatically. Well, yeah, that that's exactly the thing that I was noting throughout, where he, particularly towards the end, just before the declaration, there was a, a run where Wade struck a ball down the ground, and there was an overthrow, and Warner had gone about. 10 metres past, he'd come in pretty sharp for the single and gone about 10 metres past the stumps at the far end, then realised right, that yeah. they could get an overthrow, turned around and ran back, so he ended up running a 35 yard run <laughs> in order to get back for another run to get the other batsman back on strike when he was on 328 or whatever he was, so the fact that he had the energy to do that that late in his innings and was willing to do it and was willing to give up the strike and all the rest of it was astonishing. I don't think he could have gone for 400, honestly. I think he was pretty exhausted. But he, like, he was still running hard out there, but he didn't have the, the the strength probably to suddenly launch and whack 70 runs in an hour and, and, you know, pound up to 400. I think he would have got out if he tried. So I think the declaration for a, a range of reasons came along at the right time. But yeah. And just to close the thought on that is that when he was batting, the forecast for Sunday was dreadful. And mm. in the World Test Championship context where the 60 points Australia got Adelaide, they're valuable in their own way. I kind of get that that might be a positive part of this WTC. Mm. It's that there might have been a time when you could run the gauntlet and take a bit of a risk and assume you get over the line knowing you've already kind of eliminated the chance of Pakistan winning the series. There was no way they could win the test by that stage, a 1-0 result, a 2-0 result. You know, who really cares that much? In the, yeah, yeah. But, but this actually does have relevance to what they're currently doing and, and the forecast was mm. was dreadful for Sunday. So th- there's that other side of it too, isn't there? That, 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 that Fundamentally, the right decision was arrived at based on the information they had at the time. Yeah, um, it, it was. But I also wanted to talk about 300s just briefly because I yeah. noticed a nerd pledge number come through, which was from a few weeks ago from Alison Stock. Now, I don't know if she just wanted to to donate three dollars or if <laughs> 300 300 was a particular of particular significance but i was trying to work out what 300 might mean in a cricketing context no one's made exactly 300 no one's on 300 wickets no one's you know there, there were a few different things i was trying to work out but then this week i thought well it must just be about the triple century as a feat um, and as you say there have been 31 of them but they pretty much all sucked in terms of actually being in competitive matches. Like, you can find the caveat for all of them. You can say mostly they were against weak attacks, they were on flat decks, they were in boring draws, all the rest of it. But they're still 
amazing feats just for the endurance and you know the ability to sustain the skill level to not get out and to keep scoring over such a prolonged period of time against and no matter how bad the bowling might be it's still yep. test match bowling it's still a lot better than you're going to face in most places around the world so yep. Yep. you know to do All it at any level of cricket people don't peel off 300s in in grade cricket it's not like a test player goes back to to play for the ones um you know to to get a bit of practice during big bash season and peels off three or four hundred on a weekend so mm-hmm. it's not that easy but you know if you look at the the top few lara's 4375 were both in antigua which is the easiest place to bat in the world presumably chris gale's one was there as well matthew hayden's one against zimbabwe there was lara's one against pakistan when they'd just come into test cricket they'd only been playing for five or six years so was, uh <laughs> You said Lara. Yeah, that was, sorry, Sobers. Yeah, Sobers. <laughs> sorry, Lara took the record Lara from Sobers. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, had he made one in 1958. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so there was Mahala Jaya Wardner at the, at the SSC, which is the other deadest pitch in the world. Mm. All of the... Basically, Hanif Muhammad is the only one in the top 10 who, you know, with his 337 against Sobers' team, who made a really good innings in you know to save a match by making a triple hundred because he batted for about four days to do it but yeah you know they, they're generally against bad teams there was was it len hutton against new zealand just as they'd come hammond. into test cricket sorry wally hammond mm. um and hutton did it later at his 360 or whatever it was 364, 364. against australia yeah. so against australia at the oval when they made 900 and i think there were about six other centuries in that match so mm-hmm. you know you can find a way to discount or devalue any triple hundred you want. There were about three, I reckon, that were com- in competitive matches where they were desperately needed innings, and that was Brendan McCullum's, uh, Lawrence Rowe, and Hanif Muhammad. So out of the 31, three of them were not in easy batting conditions. But yeah, and, and if you it wanna... has to be in easy batting conditions because it's a triple hundred. Yeah, yeah. And, and even and even Lara's 400. I, I mean, I'd, I'd have to see um, the breakdown now, but I remember at the time there was criticism if I recall correctly, that his fourth hundred was the slowest of the four, which suggested that he was, you know, kind of batting for the record, which, again, I mean, you know, was there anything... Yeah, well, of course he was. Yeah, but but anyway, the, the point, I think we're, we've kind of covered the territory, that those who were getting stuck into Warner were probably going to get stuck into Warner regardless, and there was a, a far... Yeah. I, I, what I found more interesting was that the conversation around Warner, I do think, is evolving. I think those voices mm. are getting quieter comparatively certainly compared to where things were at um, when he first came back to international ranks in March. It's, it's funny, you know, isn't it? He was, he, he was, until nine months ago, he was banned from international cricket. Not even that, eight months ago. Um, it's a relatively short span of time when he was still mm. kind of public enemy number one. And then in England, making 95 runs in the series and, you know, quite loud calls that he, that he should be left out of the side altogether. To think that now he's yeah. bounced out of that with a, a, you know, a century uh, in Brisbane and then a triple here is, it's it's a hell of a ch- hell of an achievement. And you look at his overall numbers for this summer. It's something like what is it, five hundred runs? It must be more than that. Um, Seven hundred runs or something in in, uh, in international cricket um, when you total it all up with one dismissal. It's more it's, like more like eight hundred, I think. We, you put the T right. twenties in. He was he was yeah, yeah, yeah. he was seven hundred plus halfway through that innings. Right. So you know, add another hundred and fifty to that. My my my, my well, what I was pissed off about wasn't about Warner. It was about uh, I thought that a record that may never go well certainly I felt like um, a couple of years ago when Sean Marsh and Adam Vogue just came within two runs of it the Australian record at 451 which was made between 
Bradman and Ponsford uh, for the second wicket as well. I thought that was in the frame when we got to the ground on the second day, given they'd already, I think they put on 290-odd on the first day. And they were, in the first hour of day two, they made like 80 runs between the two of them. Yeah, they were flying. And, yeah, and I'm thinking 451's a, a shot here. Likewise, the the partnership between Jaya Surya and Mahanama, uh, which I think was 570-odd, back in Christ we're going back a while now um, 998 or something like that I thought that was uh, that was a, another shit triple hundred <laughs> on, right. a, on the other very flat pitch in Colombo right, well, wasn't it when Jaya Surya made his 340 yeah yeah until Marnus got out but I mean let, let's let's talk about Marnus Labuschagne briefly because I don't think there's been enough words devoted to him in the last few days wow you know comes to Australia um, yes you know all again all those usual caveats about the attack and whatever else but a second hundred where he was until he got out chanceless really I mean two big hundreds uh, where he's looked utterly dominant and look you can almost sit and forget with him at number three for as long as you want can't you it feels like that way anyway yeah well it's it's been such a quick turnaround I suppose from from the ashes where he was battling and grinding out 50s you know and, and just having to to really work so hard on those wickets um where, you know where runs were such a valuable commodity where a, a 50 or 60 was going to win you a test match whereas yeah. in australia on on these flatter decks you need a 150 to um to be a match winning contribution but he's been able to do that make that transition um he's 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 walling up the spot against Sean Marsh, who has made uh, two hundred since the last time we recorded. Adam, he yes. he made a match winning one in the domestic fifty over final, and then he's made another shield ton as well. So um, they they keep coming for us, Marsh, which proved match winning as well. West Australia had enough time on that final afternoon to bowl out South Australia. I think they got there with a couple of overs to spare or whatever it was. So um, mm. so two match winning contributions from Sean Marsh. <laughs> um, I, I, I was thinking about uh, Marsh um, when he was cracking on that second dig in, in, in the context of Travis Head, who um, had the ultimate thanks for coming uh, in, uh, in this test match. I don't remember who originally tweeted it. Perhaps Brett Graham. Um, I think it might have been. Uh, anyway, um, that there was... He joins two other players who have um, played in a test match where they haven't batted, haven't bowled, haven't taken a catch, haven't affected a run out and still been on the winning side. So Craig McDermott in 1993, mm. when, of course, at Lords he had the, the twisted bow, which had nothing to do with on-field uh, output, but it meant that he couldn't take any meaningful uh, part in the game. And then uh, Bill Johnston. So what ended up being his final test match in the Caribbean in 1955, uh, Clyde Walcott, Played a pull shot, I think it was, and uh, Johnston dives. He does his knee, and he's in such a bad way that Peter Burge and Alan Davison have to run off the ground and grab a door and turn it into a stretcher to get him off the field. And, and that's the last time he was seen uh, on the on an international venue after his long and decorated career. So, um, so along with them, now sits Travis Head. Uh, no, I'm sure he would have still had to have paid his match fees, but apart from that. Um, he got very little value. <laughs> that, uh, he would have got good afternoon teas, I'm sure, and they certainly made a lot of a big deal around him whenever he picked up the ball on the field. They, there was a lot of roars, especially from David Warner, who had the complete opposite experience in the middle uh, through those two <laughs> days he was batting. Uh, so, um, but yeah, so Travis. Well, Head, he would never have left the field, would he? David Warner was on the. I reckon he was off for about 15 minutes after he batted. He he didn't come on immediately when Australia started to bowl. Oh, didn't in he? Their I thought innings, he did. He took, he took a catch from, pretty pretty much straight away. So I didn't realise he was off the field to begin with. No, he he wasn't there right at the start because he wasn't. I, I remember checking the field for him, and he wasn't in the cordon, and he wasn't right. anywhere else. Okay, uh, but probably only for the first two or three overs, I reckon. Right, right, right. 
So, yeah, I mean, you might as well talk about Sean Marsh and <laughs> Travis Head, you know. Um, he probably would have been the guy that, that Marsh could have got in ahead of, but it's fairly clear from mm. talking to Trevor Haynes the other day that, that they're, they're not viewing Sean as a, as a viable candidate right now. But as others have observed, Adam Voges was recalled to the test side, well, brought into the test side, I should say, uh, at the same age, and he went on to have a, a couple of years, at, you know, I guess at, yep. the, at the best of his <laughs> batting, came when he was in his <laughs> mid to late 30s. Maybe it's the case that Sean yep. Marsh's best cricket is now. And, and look, is ahead of and, him. And, and if that is All the this case, time they've been saying he's a player with potential um, while he's future. been steadily mounting in, in age. Um, you were talking about paying match fees, but I'm, I'm thinking about getting paid your match fees. So the test match fee for Australia is about $18,000, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. So Travis Head got paid eighteen grand to field. Probably got for a, a couple a, of a days. Grand for every time he touched the ball. It's great. That's amazing. I love that stuff. That's a that's a that's a very high uh, <laughs> leather touch ratio. It is. It is. Hey, we, we, we mentioned um, the myth of Mark Taylor before about the idea that yeah. he, you know, got the phone call from John Howard and thought, you know what, I'll put the cue in the rack on you, Sir Don. Uh, another myth um, is uh, the follow-on which you and I have mm. gone into at various times, but um, I'm sure you would have been equally frustrated uh, as I was uh, when you would have read on Twitter, oh, Australia, they couldn't possibly enforce the follow-on. They've never done it since VVS Lakshman in 2001 at Kolkata. Um, did, I'm sure you, you saw plenty of that. But of course, they did enforce the follow-on, and um, as, Jeff, you found out when you went through this in some depth... And they have, in 2015, and, they have and they will. <laughs> well, they did. Well, the, the one that I like, and forget about the, the sort of the post-Steve Walt era, it definitely changed after that. I think Ricky Ponting did it four times. Michael Clark did it once in his final test as captain. Uh, Steve, Stephen Smith did it once, also in 2015, against the Windies in Hobart. Now, Tim Payne's done it. At his second opportunity to do it, he didn't do it um, yep. last year when we were where were we, Jeff? Last year when Payne elected not to enforce it, it was somewhere where um, I think we he later may have regretted it. Oh no, no, no it was Steve Smith it. who didn't it enforce it. it the Ashes at, at right. Adelaide, Adelaide. Yeah, no, sorry, Payne had the chance to do it in, in Canberra this year with a, a three hundred plus lead and, and elected to let right. Kawaja make a hundred instead. Um, yes. But, um, <laughs> But the uh, but yes, yeah, so Payne went with it. Uh, but yeah, just for for the record, every single time Steve Waugh had the chance to enforce the follow on after Calcutta, he did. So on seven separate occasions yep. after then, he did, and every time they won. So you know, if you want to yep. talk about the follow on being a, a, a limited, diminished thing in modern cricket, that's fine. But but don't blame it on Tugger. In fact, uh, Calcutta was Steve Waugh's first ever chance as captain to enforce a follow on, and he took that, and he took every other chance after that. <laughs> so you know, never never mind that. that that was complete nonsense. It was ponting and, and squad mentality and wanting to rest the bowlers and other good, um, uh, you know, other good ideas. Now, I, sure. I was desperately sad that I'd spent Sunday um, not at the ground. I spent Sunday stuck in Adelaide Airport on, for, through about six cancelled flights for whatever reason. Um, and I was not watching Yassir Shah batting. And I was listening to it on the radio and I was just shedding quiet tears that that I was wasting my time at, at the airport and, oh, and poor not Yassir. at the ground because what a but but what a moment. What yeah. a what a moment for for the the little bunny hopping like the the bounciest man in world cricket to to come out with the bat. He's always been a limited but enthusiastic batsman, but to bosh a hundred in a test against Australia, yeah, I know it was a lost cause, but gee, it was glorious. Yeah, it was. And look, it's unlikely he'll ever be taken to Australia again um, on the basis of the average of 90 with the ball is his principal discipline. And he went for, what was it, none for 197 uh, in the first innings of the game, which 
I think turns into the second worst Pakistan bowling figures ever. He went it mm. worse than six and over um, through that long, that long sort of day and a half journey, which must have been just traumatising for him as a bowler. But then, yeah, to come out and and to stick it to the Australians with the bat, albeit at the point where they'd already... I mean, he came in at six for 89. I mean, they were already staring down the barrel of an innings defeat. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, the, the, the way that he went about it, the, the happiness, the joy in which he spoke to us afterwards, which was great. Um, at least he has something to take from an otherwise dreadful tour. He's one of only a few players, I suppose, who can take something from it, albeit not what he wanted to take from it, but... Barbara's arm, mm. 97, batted beautifully as he did in Brisbane, uh, nicked off three runs short. A very clever piece of bowling from Mitchell Stark. I should add a bit of reverse swing from around the wicket to draw him into a stroke um, when he was on 97 when Payne was sort of chopping and changing. It was good captaincy. The, the game was sort of drifting a little bit on that third morning, but he, he engineered a scenario where, or third afternoon, I should say, where, where he had to make Barbara's arm think about it before he got to 100 and it paid dividends. I suppose Shahina Freddy yep. as well, um, three for... 80-odd or whatever it was, when you consider um, the figures of his colleagues, the only Pakistani bowler to take a wicket um, in the test match, that itself so I didn't look at that, but there, there can't be many instances where only one bowler has taken mm. a wicket for your team in a whole test match, and Shaheen Afridi uh, achieved that, um, so I think he goes home with his reputation enhanced and look, maybe Mohamed Rizvan on the basis of the way that he batted especially in Brisbane, yeah. occasionally um, in that second innings, I think it was um, in Adelaide, yeah, it was the second innings because he nicked off in the first. Yep. And if you wanted to be really generous, Sean Massoud, who's had this kind of stop-start career and, and looks like he finally might have consolidated himself as a medium-term opener for Pakistan, but taken as a whole, it's a very sorry record. They've won four test matches ever in Australia. They haven't won a test in their last four attempts going back 20 years. I was sort of joking in a dinner room, Jeff, uh, on perhaps it was day four, that it's more likely that the USA will get an invite to play in Australia um, before mm. Pakistan come out here again. And I, and I don't really mean that, but but maybe I do at one level, like where the USA will come out and play some T20s uh, in Australia. They might get the chance to do that uh, before Pakistan end up back out here for a test series because I'm sure that, um, that there'll, there'll be efforts made to, to deny Pakistan that opportunity um, on the basis of how uncompetitive they've been in the last couple of weeks. Yeah, I mean, you could say that, but you could also say Australia shouldn't be able to tour the UAE and play Pakistan, given how uncompetitive they are. <laughs> you know? I don't know. I'm not saying I'm not saying it to correct you. I'm just I'm I'm I'm, I'm basing that commentary on what we've seen with Bangladesh and other countries like, mm. like the West Indies, for example. Who I'm, I'm sure it'll be a long time before we see them on Australian shores again, and how long it's been since Zimbabwe have been here, albeit with some other complications there. I'm sure, but still, it, uh, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is that I wouldn't be surprised if Pakistan get relegated internally in decision making structures into that very much second tier and away from being a routine tourist as mm. they have been over the last you know 40 or 50 years well I, I think in a way they already have in that they've been bumped down to two test matches from True. three last time and and they were you know they were very competitive in the first two last time they nearly had a miracle win in Brisbane and they yep. nearly drew the match in Melbourne and, and lost it late on the fifth day so you know that even seemed a bit harsh, but I, I've got to say I was kind of relieved there wasn't a third test in um, in this instance because that uh, all all the life had gone out of that. Um, we've got the Australian squad for the New Zealand tests has been named without changes as expected. Yep. Um, but there is a new selection on the selection panel. George Bailey has been picked. He's still playing, but he'll um, he'll take over. Um, Greg Chappell's old spot at the end of this domestic season when he's done with Tasmania. Yeah, I strongly recommend reading Dan Breding's piece today about Bailey. It was at the back of an interview he did on 
Jared Whiteley show, but, but more about the, the reflections in Ed Cowan's book when Bailey was a selector and captain at Tasmania and, and the way that he was able to communicate with Ed about at the time not playing in, in the T20 side. This features in, in Ed's diary of 2010-2011 and, and that was quite instructive that, you know, we, we talk about communication and sometimes we, it, it gets... Um, yeah, diminished, and and I'll be guilty of this when when you know when a player isn't picked for a side, and you know how important this this phone call is. But um, having it detailed um, the way that Dan did in in this piece today, it, it's it's a reminder that it's not just about um, why they may or may not have been selected for a squad at the time. It's about building confidence in the process, and I think that Bailey, having been around the national team and the selection process for quite a long time really when you consider how long it was back from when he was first being talked up to play for Australia which gee, might go back to 2007 2008 his name was first in the conversation he has a pretty good idea of being on the wrong side of those selection meetings and I think he'll bring plenty obviously it's a grown up if you like he's a person that people have a high regard for for his intellect as well his emotional intelligence yep. and all the rest of it so he actually wasn't involved in this selection panel he'll take over at the end of the domestic season but um, yeah you say it was, it was unchanged and that was expected that meant that Will Pukowski wasn't considered um, I know he made 80 odd for Victoria on his return I say not considered we don't really know because Trevor Holmes didn't strictly speaking answer the question but reading between the lines I think the sense was that look we're going to go with the same team anyway so let's not get too in the weeds on whether Will Pukowski was available or not available um, because it's a moot point we've got the batting lineup that we want mm. at the moment but yes the fact that Pukowski and Nick Maddinson both played this week's great news the fact that Glenn Maxwell has played a couple of club games as well he made 50 odd against Frankston on Saturday that's that's great news as well um, you know Sean Marsh on the outside of the squad right now but um, two centuries in quick succession one of those won them the 50 over domestic competition so um, they have got a, a, a few options at their disposal if they um, choose to change it up through the series but it feels though Jeff that if they were to make a change the most likely scenario is is that it'd be for an all-rounder if they want to give themselves a bit more support on on those deathly tracks mm. at Melbourne and Sydney or, or certainly they have been deathly at test level the last couple of years that they, they might look to have that fifth bowler given that it feels as though with the quicks, at least, um, the squad mentality has been parked for now and we're back to kind of the old-fashioned idea of the pecking order with Stark, Hazelwood and Cummins being the big three and, and the others sitting like very much outside of the big three. Uh, so in this case, Pattinson mm. and Nisa, who remain part of the squad, as distinct from England, where they were literally shuffling it test to test. So that might mean that by the time we get to Melbourne and Sydney, um, that they're looking to have an all-rounder. Um, and yes, Mitchell Marsh probably won't be available given his hand isn't yet sufficiently recovered to be playing cricket but I would note that um, and it, people will probably laugh at this and that's fine but um, this year since he's been dropped from the Australian white ball teams Marcus Stornis has done very very well across 50 mm. over cricket and shield cricket um, probably with the ball more than the bat um, he's made probably half a dozen half centuries but um, he's averaging like 25 with the ball and 35 with the bat and when you consider um, different times that all-rounders have been picked for Australia, um, he, he might be ripe at the moment, which is unexpected given the, the poor England season that he had and the poor World Cup. But, hey, if, he, if he's going well, he's going well. And, and in the absence of Mitchell Marsh, and if they do want an all-rounder, he, he has been in that squad before. Well, I think the main issue with the World Cup is that he played the World Cup like it was a test match. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, th th that doesn't necessarily preclude him from coming into Red Bull cricket. <laughs> um 
I know you're very concerned that young Green from WA doesn't get rushed in because we certainly have a, a terrible record in Australian cricket of um, <laughs> anointing someone as the next big thing, a la Shane Watson. Oh, he can bowl 145 and make hundreds, um, you know, greatest, ex- most exciting talent since Keith Miller or whatever it was. And, you know, no pressure. Um, that doesn't ruin you for the rest of your career. Well, look, he might be. He's two, fo- he's two metres tall. He's taken a seven for in shield cricket. He bowls rapid and he's made two hundreds in first class cricket this year. Like obviously he's an exciting cricketer and he'll be playing. He'll be picked for international squad soon. No dramas. But he's not bowling at the moment because he's not fully fit. Don't pick him now. Um, I'm sure Shane Warne has probably penciled him in as captain or something for next week or <laughs> you know whatever. But and good on him. Like whatever. I, I appreciate that. Um, He's got a new Colum- proposal to Columbus make, to make the stumps. The stumps will be the size of Cameron Green. Yeah, yeah. and sure, whatever. Like that, that's their prerogative. Columbus, former players who have those positions are, are paid to have hottest, the hottest possible takes. But I just hope they, they play the, 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 the long game with this guy. Um, as I say, he's playing as a specialist batsman at the moment. So, um, And look, I'm not sure whether that's because he's um, got a niggle or something more substantial. But just leave him. If they want an all-rounder for the short term, they've got a couple of options there. Get through this summer, let this guy keep playing shield cricket and then consider where he's at after that. There's no rush. This isn't the time to mm. be taking a punt. This is a an Australian side, as Chris Barrett wrote yesterday, which which have won 71%, I think it is, of their fixtures in 2019. And that's not a bad effort when you consider they've played a one-day as in India uh, and T20s, uh, limited overs fixtures in Pakistan, a World Cup, which of course meant playing everyone in the competition, an away Ashes series, and obviously the last couple of weeks they've had um, some softer fixtures, you you might say, against Pakistan and Sri Lanka. But taken as a whole, um, not a bad effort when you consider 2018 by any yardstick was Australia's Anis Horribilis, um, that they could rebound this way. They're in okay shape. There's no need for anything drastic. uh, And and I suppose credit to the selectors uh, for having... Um, you know, been in a position to have picked successful squads more often than not through this year. Not everything's been perfect, but um, that, that's the best. That, what, what would they say in American sport? The most winningest percentage um, uh, since 2006 when Australia were absolutely flying. So, fair play. New Zealand are here to try to make sure that that year does not end with a higher win percentage. There's, uh, I'm not entirely convinced about this. That This New Zealand team are being talked up a lot. They've just beaten England at home, all the rest of it. You know, they're, they're a decent-looking side. But I just have this feeling that New Zealand... New Zealand just choke when they come to Australia. It, it's, it's because this happened last time in 2015. We were talking them up. They'd mm. won some away tours. They'd um, they'd drawn in England, won all. They were playing really well. They had McCullum um, still leading them, being the inspirational leader. And and we thought they were going to come and be competitive. And they came and got just blown away at the Gabba. And then you know got a bit more competitive at Perth to to draw on the road there and and probably should have won in Adelaide if not for some bad umpiring decisions but they they'd let the series slip by being wiped out in the first test and I'm just not convinced that's not going to happen yeah, again yeah look I I like the fair point because you're right New Zealand teams have routinely come to Australia and struggled more often than not although there's that very famous series in 85 86 and and in 0102 I don't remember the final scoreline but I know they did pretty well there too look I, they're a very strong side they're ranked number two in the world for a reason. Uh, they blend experience with Williamson and Taylor, who both made hundreds at Hamilton, with um, a, a second core of players. I think that's the difference. They're not just relying on sort of youngsters. They've got mm. Tom Latham, BJ Watling, and, and Henry Nichols, who've got plenty of Test cricket under their belt 
quite a lot of test hundreds as well, I should add, not just like cricket, but actually have played match-winning hands in different parts of the world. So you've got, I suppose, five batsmen you could seriously point to as, as credible. And then the bowling yeah. lineup. I agree um, that they got trashed here in 2015, but the tracks didn't suit that kind of bowling. Definitely didn't. I mean, that year, Brisbane, that was the worst Brisbane track in my time following cricket. It was benign. It had nothing in it whatsoever. And then Perth was the, I mean, you know, remembered for the being so so flat that it made Mitchell Johnson retire. Uh, and Ross yeah. Taylor made 290 <laughs> odds. So yeah. whilst I share your view about, the, about New Zealand teams getting overwhelmed periodically in this part of the world when they cross the Tasman, I suppose, um, this is a side that has a bit more to it. I like the fact that Wagner um, picked up yet another five-wicket haul. So that's four five-wicket bags in four test matches for him this year. Mm. Um, if not for the relative lack of test cricket that New Zealand play, he'd probably be in most test 11s, I reckon, for 2019. But, yeah, he's got 29 wickets at bugger all. They, they haven't played Lockie Ferguson yet. I hope he's in the squad. He's got wonderful first-class numbers. Never got a test match, but, Jeff, we saw how mm. how violent he can be and how accurate he can be. Um, so yep. if they want to go all out at, at Perth, I know Sartner is an important balancing mechanism because he can bat so well, but they have got the option to play Bolt, Southey, Ferguson, Wagner. That could be interesting. Uh, and the pink ball, Perth, we saw how... Or Matt Henry. Or Matt Henry. That's your other option is, is rather than Southey, who's who's lost a few yards yeah. um, and, and, you know, more of a swing and skill bowler who might not be as useful yep. in Perth. Maybe, you know, Matt Henry, who, look, didn't have a great test match at Hamilton, but no. he's, he's got pace um, and, and he's got lift. A very capable bowler we saw in the World Cup final that he can play on the big stage as well. He bowled beautifully that day at Lords. Um, in that ultimately losing effort. I can't believe I'm describing it as that. They absolutely did not lose. But anyway, um, yeah, so they're, they're, they've got lots of options. They're, they're in good nick at the right time. They've shown they can bat for a really long period of time as well, which will help against a, an attack which is likely to be those three very accurate... Well, sorry, not very accurate. That's the wrong word. Very demanding bowlers. It's very hard-facing. Stark and Cummins and Hazelwood comes on first change with Nathan Lyon. Like, that is a, they're, they're a fantastic attack. They've taken mm. 925 test wickets between them or something ridiculous, for, again, for a reason. So the fact that this New Zealand top order can bat for long periods of time, I think, is a big plus in, in their column too. So, yeah, I, I hope that it's a great series. I hope that New Zealand, having waited for this opportunity for a really long period of time, I hope they play to their potential and they push Australia and it'll be good for both countries. Australia will need to be pushed in different ways as well because they haven't been against Pakistan. They'll want to have a, a you know, a, a proper contest, I think. And, um, and and I hope that from New Zealand's perspective, they can they can come to Australia and, and, and play the way they did um, 34 summers ago or whatever it was and, and, and they can they can deliver uh, on that stage because it would be great for world cricket if New Zealand can, um, you know, can be one of those handful of sides who can seriously take it to India, um, Australia, you know, England, South Africa, if you group those four together. It'd be wonderful if New Zealand joined that crew. It was grim times for England against that team. Uh, well, the, the upside, I suppose, was Joe Root. Didn't just make a hundred, but made a double. He's he's had issues converting his hundreds. He's had issues scoring hundreds away from home um, at times. But he was able to make a major contribution. Um, the downside is that England were nowhere near forcing a result in that Test match because mm. New Zealand just blithely batted it out. But England missed so many chances. They they dropped catches throughout the series. For any chance they had to put pressure on, uh, was 
not there, but Joe Denley, the, the catch that he put down off off Chofra Archer at mid-wicket, um, not many will will get replayed more often than that. Yeah, it's possible Denley's taken the best catch of 2019 well, in Test cricket and given up the worst drop catch of 2019, that, <laughs> that, 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 that snaffle at Lords off Tim Payne. Um, I think it was Tim Payne, wasn't it? Uh, the, yeah, the, yeah, the, the pull the, shot. The pull shot, yeah. So... Um, yeah, it's going to end up on many highlight reels, isn't it? It's going to end up a, a Rob Alinda special, if it isn't already. Uh, feel for Joe Denley. After doing so well uh, to sort of maintain his spot, making runs last week, all the rest of it, he's going to leave um, the country being most well-known for that drop catch. But, you know, uh, perhaps a, a, the more significant talking point is that um, Joffre Archer wasn't as effective. So I think we assumed that you could roll Joffre Archer out anywhere and he'd be just as good as he was with the Dukes ball in England. Well, you know, let's temper that. Let's see let's see how he goes around the world. They've got a tour of this Africa, which should suit him better. And then they play in Sri Lanka after that. A good problem to have for England is that Anderson will almost certainly be fit for South Africa. So that might create a bit of a logjam with Archer. I mean, Wokes, presumably. Curran's in the mix as well. Uh, mm. So um, they're, they're most certainly a stronger bowling team than our batting team. But uh, yes, um, Root, uh, talk about needing the runs. <laughs> Rarely seen a guy who's needed runs more than that. And in the end, it, it amounted to nothing because they lost a series 1-0 and, and drew that second test. But um, yes, that, that, that will do wonders for his confidence going into a fairly high-profile series that starts on Boxing Day at Cape Town. So uh, well played to him. I still wonder, though, Adam, if he's he's kind of... He's portrayed as being this embattled captain because people are questioning his captaincy. But it's not as though people are laying siege to the ramparts because they want to demolish Joe Root. I, I think it's... These are mostly English cricket writers looking at looking at uh, the facts of several years of captaincy and saying, look, it, it probably just doesn't suit him. Um, he's probably not the best placed person to be the captain and it's probably not good for him. He's definitely the best batsman in the team, but he's not playing to his full potential because he's... Um, it, and it seems very likely that it's because he's distracted by trying to lead a, a struggling team. So... It's not like people are out to get him. They're trying to help him by, mm. by pointing out an obvious problem. And it seems to me that, in, in a way, runs like these have come at the worst possible time because it gives him um, something to hold on to, is a point of stubbornness to say, no, 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 see, I should be the captain, I'm doing fine, when actually he's not. You know, it's, it's like having an intervention with someone who's got some sort of problem that they won't admit. Um, and they say, well, look, I just got promoted at work, so all's well. It's, yeah. it's, it's not. You've still got a problem, you know. Oh, well, yeah, yeah, I've looked, as ever, there's a couple of ways of looking at it. Um, he's going to be the captain. So that he's in the runs is a good thing. They're not going to replace him. There's no one else. It, it's kind of a similar problem to what Australia have got right now. By right now, I mean before Steve Smith becomes eligible to, to captain again. In the event that Payne wasn't captain next week, it, it's probably the case that Pat Cummins would captain Australia, which isn't a long-term solution. I mean, I, I would say it is, but I know that the CA hierarchy don't view having a fast bowler as captain as, as a long-term option and if Joe Root um, sort of was injured this week they'd have Joss Butler captaining the side and he's a wicketkeeper so again not what they want in terms of their mix. I, I can't believe I'm saying this but um, you know Rory Burns is a pretty good captain at Surrey. <laughs> he is, <laughs> he is. Maybe they should be looking that way for you know well, for a couple of years. Well that, that, that has been argued, it has been argued that if they need to find a, a stopgap if you like the guy that captains Surrey not I mean it wouldn't be the first time that's happened where the captain of a high profile 
big sort of Division One county has been given the, the chance to do the national job as well. We will have a quick break and we'll be back for the second half to talk about WBBL and all kinds of other things. Hi, I'm Ian Chappell. You're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. Jeff, Future Talent, uh, what a great partner they've been of ours over the last little while. If you were at the live shows, you would have received one of their amazing cards, um, whether it had my face on it or your face on it, the spelling of my name uh, correctly or, or the rarities and oddities version of Jeff Lemons. Um, uh, people love them uh, and for good reason, not because our face is on them and our blurbs on the back, but because they're wonderful bits of kit and as a consequence of their popularity Heath Evans at Future Talent has has said that anyone who listens to the final word who wants to get their hands on one of the cards they've made up for the show can do so free of charge which I think is a lovely thing to do before Christmas personally uh, yeah, he, he'll send them out to you. I, I assume that means he'll send them out to you if you're in Australia. Um, if you're overseas, you might need to work out postage arrangements with him because I don't know what the you know charges to convey envelopes to Norway or, or um, <laughs> Sweden or other places where we have large contingents of Final Word fancies. But um, you, you can get in touch with Heath and uh, he'll be able to send you the, the first two cards in your Final Word collection. So you need to just go on there and request a sample and explain that you're part of the final word. More generally, um, as we've explained over the last couple of weeks, fantastic company. We're so glad that we're working with Future Talent because they're, I mean, they're, the product speaks for itself. You can see on our Twitter and our, and our different social media platforms how good the cards we've got of ourselves are. But um, look, there's a reason why they've made over 200,000 cards. There's a reason why they've been going for 10 years. They're, they're such a good uh, such a good way of engaging with your um, with your club or with your players or with your colleagues. Um, they're a lot of fun. They look brilliant. They're a great alternative to trophies and whatnot when it comes to presentation nights. They're a great alternative um, to Christmas cards, if you like, as well. If you if you're this time of year, if you're looking to sort of um, uh, send something about yourself, hey, why not get a footy card made up of yourself? Haven't really thought of it in those terms before, but hey, uh, you, remember, well, you, you could do you it. You could do the whole family. You could get you could get each of them. You know, if you've got one of those family gatherings with like thirty four cousins or whatever it is, um, get get a card made up for everybody um, and present it to them on the big day you might be able to do that in time for Christmas although you'd yeah. be pushing it yeah so there's lots of options there in, in terms of how you make it how you present it on the page um, however you do it though you get a 15% uh, discount by being associated with the final word so final word cricket is the code all you need to do is plug that in when you're buying and if you are sort of thinking about presentation nights especially for cricket clubs in Australia this is now the time to, to get in touch with Heath I, I can't speak highly enough of um, how good the cards are when you actually see them in the flesh um, they're just wonderful um, they've got a five star rating on Google five star rating on Facebook they're celebrating their, their 10th anniversary this year so they're they're well established in the community um, they're, they're tons of fun um, they've been great to us they're a big part of our live shows I think certainly when Heath was there with us at Melbourne but also Adelaide when people were coming in at the door we were able to give them a couple of cards and, and take away as a, a little bit of a souvenir as to, to what we do but um, yes futuretalent.com.au final word cricket is the code uh, tell your mates uh, tell others who are involved in cricket clubs or footy clubs or 
other sporting endeavours, um, your colleagues, as I mentioned before, what a great uh, way to celebrate a Christmas party at work uh, by getting some footy cards made up of your boss or something like that. There's a number of ways you can get creative there. And, um, yeah, just, again, issuing our thanks to, to Heath and, and the team there who have been looking after us for the last little while. That's futuretalent.com.au. You can request a sample and get one of the final word cards if you ask for it. And uh, final word cricket is your code to get a discount if you want to place a bigger order. Uh, Future Talent, working with the final word. Hi, my name's Kate Cross and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam and Jeff. This is The Final Word. I'm Jeff Lemon. Uh, the other fellow is Adam Collins and the Women's Big Bash League has, well, it, it all came down to the uh, the last push, I suppose, nine games across three days. Everything was going on. There were scorecards flying everywhere. There were live streams flying everywhere. And uh, the top four has been decided and in very exciting news for, for you and I, particularly Adam, the Adelaide Strikers and the Melbourne Renegades, two teams that, that we've been very interested in and that have underachieved for the first four seasons, are both in the finals at last. Yeah, I remember the first season when I reckon they might have came seventh and eighth, if memory serves me correctly. Certainly, the Renegades took a while to, to find their to find their groove uh, at this level and, and the Strikers who we've, we've backed in. Um, I think every year I've predicted them to win the comp. Every year, um, yep. uh, So um, I'm thrilled that they've ended up in second place. They, they should have ended up top of the ladder um, and we'll, we'll come to that. As you say, Jeff, there were nine By games By definition, played. if you keep predicting they'll win the comp every year, eventually it's got to happen, right? What's, mm. what's the like? Wait long by the river and the bodies of your enemies will float by. Yeah, it's like Chris Richardson um, from Access Economics, or as they used to be called, Access Economics, has, um, has predicted 20 of the last zero Australian recessions uh, over the last 20 years. So a similar thing going on um, when it comes to the... Um, to the, to the Adelaide Strikers and us, I suppose. Uh, g'day if you're listening, Chris. The the first of those games, uh, the Renegades, I love the held their nerve against the Heat. I just love the fact that mm. the Gades lost to the Stars the previous weekend and it was a pretty dreadful performance there. Um, but they needed to beat Brisbane. Oh, who a dismal was, loss. Yeah, and, and Brisbane, top of the ladder, defending champs, all the rest, and they just went out and bloody did it and they did it hard too. So the Heat make 183, they're flying, Mooney, as ever, Beth Mooney, 87 from 57 balls, what a gun. Um, but, you know, gets them up to 183, and then the, the Gades are like, nah, bugger it, we're going to do this. So Danny Wyatt makes 87 or 55 herself uh, to sort of negate Mooney's runs, and, and Jess Duffin, uh, the artist formerly known as Jess Cameron, the first of three half centuries on the bounce, she's just going amazingly, 50 off 27. Mm. So that prompted a whole another round of speculation about whether Jess Duffin will play for Australia in the World T20. She's pretty clear that she won't. North Melbourne Football Club, who she plays AFLW for, um, and the season clashes with the World T20, and, and she couldn't be clearer in her view that she's going to continue playing both sports, but it doesn't mean that we're not going to speculate about it all the way to the end, because she's one of the informed players in the country right now. Yeah, it, look, it, it's it's one of those things where she's never formally retired from international cricket, has she? No. So, much like it, Greg Matthews has never formally retired from New South Wales, <laughs> New South Wales contention. There we go. Probably um, the only time that Jess so, Duffin and Greg Matthews have been in the same sentence, and hopefully the last. <laughs> um, but she's, you know, she declined to be involved with the Australia A team. She's sort of, in every other way, has flagged that she's not really interested in continuing to try to play for Australia, which mm. seems curious given the the amounts of money on offer these days um, for for the top 
women's players. The last time she played was 2015 yep. in uh, some one day in, in T20 cricket in in that um, Ashes England, series yeah. in 2015. Yeah, played that game in Cardiff and, and, and then hasn't really put herself in contention. But I, I just don't see how she could get picked even if she wanted to be because they've got this T20 side who've, you know, pretty much won everything that they've come up against in the last couple of years. They're the defending champs in that World Cup format that was only, what, 18 months ago it will have been by the time they they contested again and, and, and I just can't see her dislodging anyone else. You've got that top order with Healy and Mooney and Perry and Lanning and Haynes and Gardner. You know, where is there a batting spot in that six? Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure you're right, but they are a beautiful set of numbers. She's made 500 runs even during the regular season mm. at an average of 71, a strike rate of 140. She's in red-hot form. Moving to the second game of that stretch, the Thunder beat the Stars as a dead rubber. It doesn't really matter that much in terms of the, the season itself, but it was the last time that Alex Blackwell made a, a, I guess yeah. a, a big contribution, 65 or 47 balls. It was fitting that in her final um, weekend of uh, professional cricket that she was able to end her career um, with a victory uh, uh, over the Stars. Um, oh, I mean... The, no one's played more than the 250 internationals that she's played for Australia. Um, three World Cups, I think three World T20 victories. She was the captain of one of those. Um, of course, she captained the Ashes retention. No, sorry, Ashes win, I should say. They, England had them until Australia won the Ashes back in 2011. Um, what a superstar. I mean, we've both interviewed her repeatedly, um, Jeff, over the journey. Now, of course, on the Cricket Australia board, uh, a great human being, a fantastic contributor. Uh, and the fact that she kept playing Big Bash the whole way through, I mean, she's been out of the international game for a, for a couple of seasons now, but, but was super committed to staying with the Thunder. Of course, she captained them to the title in WBBL 1 back in... 20, mm. early 2016 and, and yeah still making runs to the very end yeah Renee Farrell another one who's um, pulled the pin playing with the Thunder and Kristen Beams with the Melbourne Stars the the leg spinner who was had a bit of an unexpected career I, I guess yeah. um, you know came, came into the national team fairly late in her career but then had so much impact over the course of a few years yeah that's right just on Farrell um, I, I, I happened upon uh, via um, Yazrana at Wisden he, he posted a, a spell uh, of, of Renee Farrell's on, on social media yesterday which is when she took a hat trick and Pfeiffer on that game where Blackwell was captaining when Australia won the Ashes in in, uh, in 2011 mm. so um, an amazing response to, to that hat trick and had a, an excellent international career over the better part of a decade so well played to Alex Blackwell Renee Farrell and Kristen Beams ending their, their WBBL careers in the final round of this season back to the games we are following closely the Renegades uh, redeemed themselves in their second game against the Stars um, once again it went to the death it always seems to with the Gates doesn't it um, they were chasing 162 after Lizelle Lee made runs and Jess Duffin, we've already said it, but again, she made 76 not out or 57 in that game and they won from the second last ball recovering from two for 11. So I think, Jeff, earlier on in the Renegade season, we felt mm. like they might be going back down that path again of losing close games, but they've started to sort of go the other way at the right time of the season. Yeah, maybe they've just been involved in so many close finishes yeah. that they're immune to it now and, and they have actually learned to, to get those clutch wins. They did start winning a few of them last season as well, right. but, Super but over. consistently. Mm -hmm. maybe, maybe they're getting a bit more consistent here. Um, the Sixers got knocked out 
which was astonishing given the way they started the season. They were flying and then basically Elise Perry got injured, wasn't going to be available until the finals at the earliest and they've pretty much barely won a game since. So they got knocked out by the strikers. Um, (laughs) 93 runs they made in 20 overs. I was going to say, I mean, you look at that, it's just unbelievable. You you see that Sydney Sixers side, it's basically the Australian team when you look at it on on paper. Um, I mean, I'm exaggerating there, but there's a lot of international representatives there and yeah, they've missed the finals um, for the first time in their history. I saw Ash Gardner wasn't too happy when people were reflecting on Perry's um, injury being the turning point of the season. But, I mean, how can you... It stacks up, doesn't it? So um, the strikers did it easy there. Uh, Sophie Devine, 46 not out. What a season. She's, we'll come to this in a sec, but she's been the player of the season, named officially. So, uh, And I note that Sarah Coit, picked up three for nine or four mm. overs against her old club. She played for the Sixers in a, in a premiership a couple of years ago. So uh, Sarah Coit back in South Australia, back taking wickets. She's no longer an international representative, but still a classy bowler. Yeah, well, she's bounced around between um, those clubs a little bit, but mm. uh, but back in the blue at this stage. Um, the Perth Scorchers lost to Hobart, which was unexpected over in WA, um, you know, given the Scorchers made the finals and the Hurricanes have been a long, a long way off that. So Perth sort of blew their chance to go into the finals um, on a high, but they were held to 107. It, it was that that young bowling core, that um, the, the recruitment core to Hobart in mm. Maisie Gibson, Nicola Carey, Taylor Valamick, who managed to, to squeeze them there. And then Aaron Fazakali smashed 58 and, and ran them down. And then the Renegades had their last game at the Junction Oval against the Thunder and Jess Duffin again, another 50, 53 she made. Danny White, 44, uh, made 151, defended it easily. Molly Strano picked up three for and was player of the match. But um, the Renegades have lost Danny Wyatt now because she's off on England duty. Yeah, so that's well, like massive for them given how she's played this season. Yeah, and we'll come to that in a bit more depth in a sec. But yeah, it does stand out, doesn't it, when we talk about Danny Wyatt making 87 and 44 in consecutive games. The fact that she won't be there on finals weekend is fairly disappointing. And, and just to come back to the Scorchers, I mean, they end up um, they ended up beating the, the Hurricanes in their second rubber. Um, Lanning made a, a century of 67 balls, as you do. Meg Lanning, um, always good for at least 100 in each WBBL season um, to finish off their, their regular season campaign. But, I mean, if they win that game, if they do a double over the Hurricanes, who are a shambles, really, when you look at their... Well, not a shambles, that's not fair. They, they have improved steadily through the season in parts of their output, but their, their win-loss record's terrible again. Um, you know, they... they they're not going to get the home final, but they might finish second. I mean, if everything could have gone right, they, they may have had a more favourable draw. But mm. once again, the, the Scorchers have been their own worst enemy since the start of this competition in 2015. Um, they they find a way to lose games they absolutely should not. Um, the Sixers, with their season over, um, ruined the strikers' chance of opening the final. <laughs> so uh, the Sixers, we said already how they'd struggled to make mm. necessary runs. But then in comes Elisa Healy uh, in their final game, which has got no relevance to where they're finishing they're definitely fifth uh, by the time they arrive for this game and she makes 84 or 38 balls hits seven sixes um so you know as you do um sophie divine in reply nearly did it for adelaide hit 60 off 38 but um they they fell well short in at the end which really boiled everything down to um whether the heat could win their final game as to who would finish top so with the strikers losing to the Sixers it meant that if, if, the, if the Heat mm. beat the Stars well they were going to host the, the finals weekend there's a huge benefit to that I mean finishing second uh, is one thing you get the more favourable draw but finishing top which the Heat do this week having um, 
or do get to do having beaten the Stars comfortably in a 10-over smash. They they um, they kept the Stars just to 87, and Beth Mooney walks out and hits 59 out of 27 balls. They did it um, easily. I mean, they host the semi-final and the final, and the defending champs, um, they couldn't have played any better for Brisbane. That was definitely uh, an expression of anger innings from Elisa Healy. And I don't know if you, you wouldn't have caught it because you're in England, but the, the documentary that was being made during the Women's Ashes um, in England earlier this year, the second part of that aired on Channel 7 tonight, um, Australian time, Thursday evening Australian time where I am. And it was particularly interesting that there's quite a bit of inside the dressing room footage from that test match where um, Australia were working out whether they would declare on the last day and try to bowl England out or whether they would just bat England out of the game, take right. the draw and, and, and ensure the series points. Um, you'll, you'll find this very interesting when it comes to you. So that aired tonight and obviously you would remember you and I were there and, and we were among people who were very critical of the fact that Australia didn't make any effort to win the Test match um, and, and, and just batted out a, a boring draw. So there's there are these kind of tense conversations between Meg Lanning and Matthew Mott and so on and a lot of chewing of the nails and, and Lanning's taking the, the very dry view that like why should they have why should England have any right to be a chance to win this test yep. you know we've we've been the better team and we shouldn't give them a sniff and if she, that sort of gets discussed with Mott eventually it gets taken to the other players in the room and and Mott sort of says well if you know what does anybody else think does anybody object to what the captain has laid out which is a pretty hard thing to object to because the captain's already made her view clear and no one says anything they all sit there very quietly and meekly in silence and it's only Elisa Healy who then pipes up and says well I'd like to have a crack at them but you know but I understand if if you want to do it your way but but I'd like to have a go so you know I've, I've got a lot of regard for Elisa Healy she's got a uh, that aggressive instinct in her cricket and I like the fact that she was the one who said well you know <laughs> if we've got 40 or 50 overs we might just bowl them out so yeah yeah, um, uh, yeah th- that's her approach to the game um, in any case it, it didn't get the sixes into the finals this time around but they've had a very good run there so it's um pretty nicely set up every team has a 1-1 record with every other team this season so there, there's no real advantage there um that availability issue though is it's been a problem in every wbbl season so far and it's a problem again with all the england players in malaysia to play pakistan as uh, megan maurice was writing about on the guardian overnight yeah so this is i mean <laughs> I feel like we've had this conversation so many times, Jeff, but how is it that we're pretty much where we always were on this? Each year at the pointy end of the competition, international players have had to go elsewhere. We're used to the South Africans being in this situation. Marazan Cup, Dene Van Niekerk stand out as having missed premierships with the Sixers on that basis. We've had New Zealand players having to, to, to leave for, for major chunks of WBBLs before when they had their own domestic competition clashing. Last year, Danny White had to seek an exemption to stay for the semi-final. They didn't make the final, but she wouldn't have been able to have played the final due to a bilateral series that England were playing at that time. But I guess my, my simple question is, is that if we were talking about exclusivity windows for the big Women's Big Bash four years ago, um, I saw the, the boss uh, of the BBL um, in that, Megan Maurice piece saying they're aspiring to a window. Well, I mean, why hasn't it happened yet? They, they should have first mover advantage. It, in this case, they've nearly, nearly, nearly got there. It's just one weekend. But that one weekend is where the finals are being played. And it does 
have a big effect on who's available. Look at the teams. The, the Renegades lose the aforementioned Danny White and Tammy Beaumont, who's one of the best players in the world. The Strikers lose Lauren Winfield, although it must be said that Winfield was only staying on as injury cover, but it doesn't matter. She's still part of the, the contingent there at Adelaide. And Perth are losing Nat Siver and Amy Jones, two legitimate match winners. Um, in the case of Siver, top-order player who's going to bowl four overs more often than not, and Amy Jones, top-order player who's, who's wicket-keeping for them. So the mm. Heat, on the other hand, with no English players in their starting 11, um, progressed to the semi-final stage at home and not having any major players leaving their side. It, it reinforces why they're favourite. But, yeah, it, it is regrettable that they haven't found a way to get through this given and, and look maybe the WBBL is too long maybe the argument is is that we need to um, make it smaller next year if it's got its own um, isolated window which it had this year for the first mm. time in the Australian domestic calendar and if it were two weeks earlier or a week earlier or whatever this wouldn't be an issue but I mean back to first principles why haven't we arrived at a stage where this competition is carved out and we don't because if had um had the thunder made the postseason nita Dar also would have missed because she's playing against england for pakistan in malaysia next week we saw last year the thunder suffered from losing harm and Kaur for the semi-final they lost by one run i think it was so um mm-hmm. yeah this is having a material effect on who wins the competition and it isn't the same as men's cricket when you can just kind of call up a new international player the depth isn't the same or it isn't the same kind of depth um, that we have in in men's cricket and that I think that would be if we had a had a window where it just was held to skeleton WBBL I don't think anyone would lose out of it well yeah we've heard it said for several years that it's going to happen in the future but we haven't got there yet although it does make you wonder whether it should be more of a part of the recruiting strategy if if you're you know building your club around a reliance on players who won't be able to be there should you be in contention for the final then maybe that's not the way to do it but uh, Sophie Devine the player of the series deservedly 699 runs she made at a strike grade of 130 also picked up 16 wickets at 20 in the competition um, just blitzed it this year and yeah. I, I was glad to see it like she's she's done it in patches before you know she made that massive 100 off 50 balls so the, the the first one that she'd made in the WBBL a few years ago she the second season perhaps it was or the first she's had these moments she's had match winning games she had the match where she batted and bowled in the super over but she hasn't necessarily put it together for a whole season and, and just been dominant throughout and this year she was so consistent when you look at it if you bat 14 times and you've made 700 runs I mean I mean, she, she's making well her average is 77 but she's contributing on average you know, the better part, well, nearly 50, right in on 50 runs in innings, which in t- 2020 yeah. cricket is, is more or less unheard of unless you've read Coley. Um, she's mm. got eight half centuries in the competition. So, yeah, massive. Uh, I think last year might have been the first season where her bowling was more influential than her batting. But, um, yeah, Sophie Devine uh, stepping it up. We, we've seen it from WBBL1 all the way through that she has the ability to win a game. But, um, yeah, this year, really entering that, that new bracket. Um, we, we're, we're used to seeing Beth Mooney there, who I should add, in any other season, I mean, Beth Mooney would probably win mm. the award. Well, maybe not last year when Perry made 777, but um, Mooney made 672 this year, again at 75. Um, and eight half centuries for her as well. They're the two real standout players in the competition. Meg Lanning, another 500 run season, 530 runs at 44. She passed 50 on five occasions, including that century on the final weekend. And Jess Duffin was the fourth player, as we mentioned before, to make it to 
500 runs. So, yeah, it, it, when we were first covering this comp, Jeff, I think Lanning was the only player to reach 500 and might have just got, yeah. got over the line. It might have been like 520 or something like that. Now we've got, you know, four players comfortably passing the mark. Well, three comfortably and then and then Duffin hitting it right on, which says a bit about the way that, that scoring rates have been inflated year on year. I, I read somewhere that we've seen more boundaries and more sixes in the regular season this year than any other time, which just reinforces that that women's cricket and women's short-form cricket does get better every year. Can I give you one beautiful little number here? I, I was so happy for, for Beth Mooney to, you know, 672. The other season, she's been so consistent, but every season she'd make about 400, you know, 400, 450. Yep. This year, 672, she's gone big. So she's number two on the run scoring list. She's scored almost as many runs as Sophie Devine, you know, 20-odd behind. She's scored them almost as fast, strike rate of 127 versus 130. But Beth Mooney hit two sixes this year. Sophie Devine hit 28. <laughs> that's wonderful. Having a look at that now myself, that's, that's wonderful, isn't it? So a lot more boundaries, a lot more fours in the Mooney um, catalogue and a well, lot more get the, in the, the Devine top, innings year this year. in front of me. No one in the top ten has fewer than five boundaries. They've all got – the sixes, sorry. They've all got – you know, most of them have double-digit sixes and then Mooney's mm. sitting there with two sixes. It shows her broader all-round game, doesn't it? What a, what a game. Along the carpet. Always along gun. the carpet. So there's been an official 11 put out by the league, uh, an official team of the tournament for the first time. Next week after the finals, we'll do two things. We'll do our team of the tournament, which will capture whatever happens on finals weekend at Allen Borderfield. Wasn't so, our team supposed to be the first five years, though? Yeah, we're going to do both. I think it was supposed to be the full WBBL. Yeah, we're going to do both. We're going to do a team of the year. Team we're going to do year. both. We're going to do a team of the year and a team of the five years. I think it's worth worth investing in both of those for next week. So the finals are AB Field this weekend on Saturday um, morning. It's Strikers and the Scorchers. Saturday afternoon, the Heat and the Renegades. So second versus third, then first versus fourth. And the final is at 1.40, uh, 1.40 local time. So that must be 12.40 Eastern time, I think. Maybe two forty Eastern time. I never really know when it's Brisbane, which way the clocks go. Anyway, it's on. It's on Sunday afternoon, the final of Women's Big Bash League uh, season five. And if the if the finals are half as good as they were last year, Jeff, they'll be worth watching and a fitting uh, cap to what's been another very successful season. Jesus, if the finals are like they were last year, then I don't know. We might have medical problems. They were. Um... <laughs> The last last ball heart stoppers in yes. every respect. So Absolutely. it might be a bit of a big ask to expect it to be that good. But you know, we'll we'll see what we get turned out, and we'll talk to you about it next week. Sorry if I ran out to empty this, so you know what I meant. I had to go.